Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. This week on Education Matters, we welcome two educators who are making news. First up is Lee Kokina. She's a school psychologist in the Wake County Public School System and was recently named the National School Psychologist of the Year. We're going to talk to Lee about the role of a school psychologist and what our students need. And we're going to continue our series of state superintendent candidate interviews by welcoming Dr. Jen Mangrum. She's a professor in teacher education at UNC Greensboro, who last year ran a high-profile campaign for the state Senate against Senate President Phil Berger. Before we tackle our main topics, we open with our headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. Last week, the North Carolina House overwhelmingly approved a proposal that would put a $1.9 billion school construction bond on the 2020 ballot, with $1.5 billion earmarked for public schools. The bipartisan 99-6 final vote means it now heads to the Senate, where it has largely been dismissed by Senate leaders. They have their own proposal that would use cash from a new school infrastructure fund that they say would be less expensive for taxpayers. North Carolina teachers earn on average $53,975 this school year, according to the new study from the NEA. That placed the state's average at 29th in the nation and second in the southeast. Republican leaders in the General Assembly claim credit for the increase from 37th nationally last year, while some critics pointed out that veteran teachers have seen very little of the recent increases and that average pay is actually propped up by high supplements funded by counties like Wake and Mecklenburg, not the General Assembly. Finally, this legislative session could be the one where a statewide school calendar flexibility bill actually becomes law. After dozens of local bills have been introduced, the House Education Committee last week backed a bill that would allow any school district to start earlier in August to match the calendar used by its local community college. It also backed another bill that would let school districts in 22 counties pilot starting the school year earlier in August to see how it would affect tourism, which is why we have a picture of the beach up there, which, is a, which has been largely opposed um, by the tourism industry uh, for public schools changing counties. We'll be keeping a focus on this issue going forward. Remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and read more about each of these headlines, as well as all the other topics we cover each week. As I said at the top of the show, our first guest is a school psychologist in Wake County Public Schools, and she was just named the National School Psychologist of the Year by the National Association of School Psychologists. Lee Kokinas, welcome to Education Matters. Thank you. I'm well, happy to be here. Well, first, congratulations. It's, uh, that's quite an honor. This is a national <laughs> recognition. I pr presumably, with, if it's the, I guess the association leads, this is a recognition by your peers of what you do. So, it is, yes. So that's exciting. Well, all right, I'm going to ask as a real basic question, not just for me, but also for our viewers. Um, when I, I think about the different roles in a school, I hear there's school psychologists, there's school social workers, there's school counselors, there's school nurses. What does a school psychologist do, and how are they different from these other roles within a school? Um, well, school psychologists are most often um, compared to school counselors. But school psychologists are, if you want to think of it as school psychologists, are the psychologists who know the most about education and the professional educators who know the most about psychology. And so we really bridge these two um, professions and fields together. 
Right. And so this is, I should probably point out, because we're going to talk a little bit about, I mean, when I, I mentioned all those different positions that do support schools, it's something that we've talked about on the show. Mm -hmm. There really aren't a lot of school districts that have um, um, all of those things available for students anyway. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We, it, we released the public school forum that puts on the show. We had our top 10 education issues a few weeks ago. We actually talked about the lack of school psychologists both under the school safety um, uh, issue that we mentioned, but also under whole child. And we're, we've got some stats we're going to show on screen about, about recommended ratio. But just, just tell me a little bit about it. I'm, I, th I think the first thing on the screen we have is that the, uh, the recommended ratio, sort of the national sort of best practice, is one school psychologist for every 700 students, which to me sounds like a lot anyway. Mm -hmm. But uh, in North Carolina, it's like triple that. We have yes. one to every 2,100. What does that mean? Um, for the experience of the students and the teachers in that school when we have a ratio like that? On a daily basis, it means that students don't have access to mental health supports in schools um, right when they need it. You know, in some of the larger counties like Mecklenburg, and excuse me, <clears throat> in Wake County and Mecklenburg County, we, we're split between two and three schools, but it, um, it very much impacts rural communities because a lot of my colleagues across the state are split between four, <clears throat> excuse me, four and five and perhaps six schools over a work week. Right. And so, you know, we are also supporting students with disabilities. So our time is very stretched and where you might have students that need somebody to talk to immediately and if you are having a crisis situation, you really do need somebody to talk to right away and students don't have that access. Right, well I mean like you're in Wake County, I should have mentioned that, you're at, um, you work at two schools, uh, mm -hmm. you're at uh, Lynn Road Elementary yes. here in, uh, in Wake County and also, what's the other school? West Millbrook Middle West, School. West Millbrook. So, so right here, this is, you know, this is Wake County, which I think generally speaking is one of the, um, the better funded schools that have more of these, but yet you're split between, mm -hmm. and so how does that work? Um, you mentioned their kids can be in a crisis, but are you, do, do students get referred to you? Do they ask you? Do, are there children that, I guess, already come in, uh, you know, sort of, sort, of a, sort of documented issues that become like, uh, I guess, almost like cases for you? How does, that, how does that process work in a school? Well, there's, in, um, in a lot of schools, there is a referral process. And schools in uh, North Carolina operate under, you know, with, in a multi-tiered systems of support framework. Um, but a lot of times it's parents calling and saying, this is what's happening at home, this is what's happening, these are the thoughts and these are the, the words that my child is using. Um, sometimes kids, I've had kids that have sought me out on their own and I've had kids come to my office who have been having a panic attack. And so I can help them through that and then sometimes I can return them back to the classroom to learning in a brief period of time and sometimes that happens over a longer period of time. So the referrals um, ideally would come through a referral process, but that's just not real life. A lot of times it's teachers are saying this student is really in a crisis situation. Well, let's talk about what the students are. You and I were talking before we started filming. Um, you know, you're a mom, I'm a dad. Mm -hmm. we, we, we see our own kids and their friends. We've got some more data we're going to show up on the screen. I feel like as a society we've made some progress in how we talk about mental health. I mean, we recognizing that mental illnesses do in fact exist um, mm -hmm. and that they show up in children. but. I mean, how prevalent is it? Um, I mean, and is it a prevalence versus increasing prevalence, or is it just that we know more? Uh, it's probably a combination of both. We know more. We're better. Uh, we're better adept at recognizing it. Um, 
the specialized instructional support personnel, which is the school psychologists, school counselors, school nurses, and um, school social workers, um, we have made a concerted effort in school districts across North Carolina to support teachers and staff and principals in understanding what might look like a behavior problem may indeed be anxiety, may be, may be anxiety manifesting itself in the classroom. Right, we've, got a, we've got some stats on the screen right now. One in five children, um, North Carolina children, have a mental health or substance use disorder. And if we can pull that one back up, the one, the, the second bullet, 75% of those will not receive treatment. And it's, because, it's tied directly back to what we were talking about at the beginning. The just, there's just not enough resources. There are not enough resources. There's not um, split between two schools. Um, I'm, I'm constantly going back and forth between the week. I have my week split up, but then, um, you know, in Wake County, we have school psychologists that support other teams. We have different assessment teams, um, and we have um, a school mental health team as well. So we are, we're stretched. We're doing, I would say, we're doing very well under the circumstances, um, but I do want to emphasize that that's in Wake County, and I know that, I know what happens in, in Mecklenburg County, but it just the, the the lack of supports in the rural communities is so much um, is so much worse and a dire situation for students there. All right, I, I want to bring this last topic is is a, is, a, is a difficult one, but we've done a show on it before. Suicide. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, look, obviously with the, with the, with increasing prevalence of mental health, depression, anxiety, suicide in North Carolina was the second leading cause of death among. Um, among students, children ages 10 to 24, numbers doubled mm -hmm. in recent years. Um, a third of adolescents have a mood or anxiety disorder. I guess so. These, those are what this is what you're seeing. This is yes. what you're. This is what you. This is your day. Yes. This is, and and I might have my whole day and week planned out um, with appointments and students I need to see and parents I need to to work with. But that will always, you know, that will always rise to the top. And and it takes a very it takes um, a lot of people coming together, and it takes a lot of time. And um, if best case scenario, um, we get them support through community supports, um, medical services, but it's very time consuming. And it, um, a lot of kids just don't have that, that access. What do you, as, as, as a trained psychologist, I mean, what, do you, what is your impression of sort of the, the, the causes of this? We, we hear things about bullying. We know that, um, on the one hand, the, the, the fact that there's more discussion around uh, gender identity and LGBTQ, mm -hmm. but at the same time, those are also children that are tend to be struggling even more because they're dealing with that in the middle of everything else. So, sort of, what do you what do you see as some of the um, uh, the drivers of this? There that there's so many of them. Um, some of them some of them it is gender identity. For some of them, it is bullying. For some of them, it is um, a lot of things going on at home, um, maybe a lack of support, um, a lack of uh, lack of support, or things that their family needs. Right. So we all know that when adverse childhood experiences adverse childhood, and what's and when, going on right, at home, right? Yeah. When things aren't going well at home, um, they're not going well at school either. And we know that we can help that. We can put some things in place. And sometimes it is just getting the parents to come into school. Or talking to them over the phone and saying, "Tell me what's going on. Tell me, tell me what your child's story is right now, right. and how is that playing out?" And letting them know that the school is there for them. And I do try to make sure that kids and families know that that your school cares about you. And we see so much. We spend so much time with them, and we often know their story 
and their family story, and that is that makes a huge difference right. in kids' lives. Well, you're making a big difference, and you've obviously been recognized by your peers. So thank you, thank you. for coming on the show and talking about it. Uh, important work, and we need we need more people like you in the yes, schools. So absolutely. thank you, Lou. Thank you. After a brief com brief commercial break, we're going to be back with State Superintendent candidate Jen Mangrum. Education Matters is brought to you each week in part by Paragon Bank, serving others, enriching lives. Welcome back to Education Matters. We're going to continue our series of interviews with the announced candidates for state superintendent. And joining us today is Dr. Jen Mangrum. Jen, welcome to Education Matters. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so I, I said that we're, we're, you are the third uh, candidate. Uh, just to remind uh, viewers and voters, the, uh, the primary um, is in March of 2020. So we are 12 months away. Um, and we have four announced candidates um, for the Democratic nomination for state superintendent. The current incumbent, uh, Mark Johnson, um, um, has not announced whether he's going to run for re-election. I think the presumption maybe is that he is. But uh, we're going to talk about you today. Okay. All right, let me give you a little bit of a bio and then you can, you can fill in. You are a native North Carolinian. I am. Both of your parents were elementary school teachers, so I guess you can say that teaching was in your DNA from the beginning, and then you became a teacher. Um, you were um, a classroom teacher um, in Onslow, Guilford. Uh, you went to three great universities who've produced a lot of great teachers in North Carolina, UNC Wilmington, East Carolina, and UNC Greensboro, which is where you're now um, teaching. Um, and helping prepare future teachers. So mm -hmm. I guess my first question, which is the first question that I've asked the other candidates, is why are you running to be state superintendent? Hmm. So I'm running to reclaim public education um, in North Carolina for our teachers and our students. I think that we have taken a path where education has um, become about uh, politics and about businesses and about the needs of uh, of groups of people that are not in our public schools. And so I want to be the person who represents teachers and makes schools places people want to be, places people want to learn. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, and you mentioned about, you started out, you said about students and about teachers. I mean, it seems like when you're, if you're going to talk about public education in schools, um, teachers are a great place to start. Yes. Um, what do you think that we need to be doing differently? We, we talk a lot about teacher pay. Right. And we need to talk about that. Right. And you can talk about that. But I mean, what do we need to be doing? What are we doing right? What are we, where are we um, uh, falling short when it comes to teaching in North Carolina? Yeah, so I was a classroom teacher for 14 years in elementary school. Um, counting my uh, primary opponents and superintendent, uh, they have less than seven years altogether. I know what it means to be a teacher, and teachers are not being valued. Um, in 1989, I moved to Guilford County to be a teacher, and there was a surplus of teachers, meaning I couldn't get a job. Wow. I had two years' experience and a master's degree. Uh, fortunately, there was an allocation. I got a position, so I had master's pay. Um, I had a full-time assistant as a second-grade teacher. Um, I had a salary that was ranked, you know, towards the, I, I guess we were about 20th, because I was under Governor Hunt's um, right. stint as governor in the third and fourth terms. Um, I had the resources I needed to teach, 
And those things shouldn't be like, wow, that's awesome. You know, right. it should be the norm. Um, and so because I've been in their shoes and for the past 14 years as a professor, I spend every week in schools working with my student teachers. Um, and it, it has completely changed in terms of teachers aren't supported, they aren't respected, they aren't valued. Um, I think parents do, but the people that hold the money strings, the people who make decisions about their autonomy, and that's important to teachers. Well, that's the thing. You know, we, we were, um, you, you were down there. Uh, we had our camera down at the teacher march um, oh, yeah. about a year ago. Um, and the questions kept coming really from the legislature and the media about teacher pay. But to a teacher, everyone I talked about to, that I interviewed and talked to said the things you just mentioned. It was autonomy. It was school supplies. It was how old my textbooks were. It was they were, everyone wanted to show me the pictures of their classrooms yeah. that were falling apart. It was like, and, and how much they had to spend out of their own pocket. Um, it's not, you know, I've been in the, in the sort of corporate world and the nonprofit world and professional world, but yet I've, I've never had to go out and buy uh, my own paper. Paper. Right. Uh, yeah, I was in a school uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was funny because they actually were um, learning about Governor Hunt, and but they all they had was a handout that the teachers had run off of a textbook. They didn't. They didn't have a textbook. Um, and teachers, you know, you talk about May 16th. I ran against uh, Phil Berger in 2018 because I wanted to be a voice for teachers. I said teachers don't typically advocate for themselves. They shut their doors. They want to teach their kids. They want to make a difference. Um, but on May 16th, I found out that changed. Right. And when you have 20,000 plus teachers in Raleigh saying the same thing, and yet our legislators were in the building looking out, I don't know if you've seen that picture of all the teachers, um, they're not listening to teachers. Right. Uh, teachers understand that I know what they're going through, and this should not be happening in North Carolina. We should be at the top of our game. We um, should be ranked in the, at least in the top 20 in terms of salary, in terms of our curriculum. Um, I believe that we have to have testing, um, but we're doing a ridiculous amount. So let's take the lead. Let's be the state in the, the, state in the country that um, people say that's where education is, right. is let me first. Ask you, let me shift gears on something. You, uh, in your platform and on your website, you talk about um, uh, equity. Equity, um, yeah. Um, we talk about it a fair amount on the show. I think if you are in the Triangle area, um, you have a different experience than if you were in Cumberland County, where I grew up, or if you're in Duplin County, where my wife grew up. Um, why is that important? Yeah, I wrote an article um, for Policy Watch, Tale of Two Schools. These schools were within 10 miles. I just recently talked to someone who had the same experience with schools within one mile. Um, schools that are affluent are typically, typically called good schools, right? Um, schools in poverty, not. Well, I work in schools of poverty. Um, there is good instruction going on. Teachers are working hard, but those kids are behind the eight ball. Uh, one of the things um, I work on is a STEM project at UNCG where we help elementary teachers teach engineering. And we only do it in these schools of poverty because these kids are not getting rigorous, high-quality education. And it's not because of the teachers. Right. It's because the teachers are held to these high-stakes tests. It's because of the pressures of pacing guides. It's because people are micromanaging. Um, again, not trusting teachers. And that's the, the autonomy thing is another one that you've, it's you've so talked It's so important, about, right? right. And then you look at the schools that are more affluent where it's more, uh, teachers have a little bit more freedom. I wouldn't say a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but that shouldn't be happening. Um, I just recently also worked with the National Padilla Center. And there's a school in Charlotte that we work with that the PTO paid us $60,000 in a contract to work with their schools, wow. okay? Now, that's the PTO. Um, there are other schools that 
that isn't even imaginable. Right. And so we have to do something. Um, you know, I won't control the money strings, but I certainly will lobby on behalf of, of schools and districts and teachers and superintendents to say, give them the resources they need so that we have a more equitable playing field for well, our students. Look, you meant, look, you mentioned you're, you're currently, you will be running against um, other uh, Democrats for the nomination, but ultimately one of you uh, will be running, again, likely against the current superintendent. I mean, it is likely that I'll be running. Yeah. <laughs> what, um, what should this, the next state superintendent be doing differently? So um, I was in Northeast North Carolina recently and met with a superintendent. Um, and he said that he was not given autonomy, that he wasn't given the resources he needs, he wasn't given the freedom to make decisions around assessment, around curriculum, um, that he felt like his hands are tied and his school district, I think he said, had over 70% poverty. My job would be to collaborate with superintendents, not be the person that puts demands on them, but says, how can I support you? Because I want all these districts to succeed. So I think the superintendent needs to work in, um, in conjunction with the superintendents as a group. Um, I also think I need to lobby uh, the General Assembly and say, look, let me explain to you what schools are like, because you don't know. You don't realize that teachers are putting snacks in their closet so, because kids are hungry. Right. Um, so between working with the superintendents in the school districts, being a fierce advocate for teachers and our children, um, and then tell, working with the General Assembly to say we need policies that are effective, that make sense, um, that put money in public schools. All right. Last question real quick. Are you optimistic you know, let's see, if you are the nominee and get elected? Are you optimistic we can, um, you can make those kind of changes? I know that I can make those changes. And 2020 is so important. Um, teachers need to vote. Teachers need to be, uh, have a voice. Teachers need to be advocates because our children are worth it. And North Carolina needs to be at the top of this Dr. Country. Jen Mangrum. Thank you. Thanks for coming on Thank and talking you. about your campaign. After the break, this week's final word. As I mentioned during our headlines, the National Education Association released its annual teacher pay report just last week, and it showed that average teacher pay in North Carolina will move up from 37th last year to 29th in the country this year. Now that is good news, particularly since average teacher pay bottomed out at 47th nationally in 2013 after being as high as 21st back in 2001. Now, Republican leaders in the General Assembly were quick to claim credit given recent teacher pay increases in state budgets they've passed. Now, that's, a, that's fair to take credit for that. But it's also fair to point out that not only has North Carolina been here before, but we did it while also supporting teachers with funding for professional development, for teachers' assistance, for school supplies, for supplemental pay for earning their master's degree, with longevity pay quite a long list of areas where we have and continue to fall short today. It is also fair to say that counties like Wake County and Mecklenburg County with lucrative local teacher supplements help prop up that average salary with those supplements. The Charlotte Observer in an editorial last week also pointed out one of the state's worst rankings, and that's how North Carolina teachers compare to other college graduates. There, North Carolina ranks 49th in the country according to the Economic Policy Institute. So while, North, while teachers across the U.S. made an average of 18.7% less than comparable workers in North Carolina, it was a startling 
35.5% less, meaning that if you've got a college degree and become a teacher, um, you're going to make 35% less than other comparable college graduates. So we've made progress, but we're still giving teachers too many reasons not to teach. That's it for this week's show. Now, please tune in next week. We welcome right here on the set, Governor Roy Cooper for the full show. So thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.